Hi, it's David Freudberg from Humankind on Public Radio. Stay tuned. Our podcast begins in a moment after this brief word. Hello, inclusionists. Now, what comes to mind when I say that word inclusionist? Or how about if I say that we should all think inclusive? Well, we get to all of that on Think Inclusive, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies for creating more inclusive and equitable learning environments for all learners. Join me, Tim Viegas, from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, as I have conversations with thought leaders and experts in the field of inclusive education and disability justice. Learn from their stories, insights, and experiences about what inclusion looks like in the real world and how you can make it happen in your own context. Whether you're an educator, a parent, a student, or an ally, this show is for you if you believe every child deserves to belong, participate, and thrive in their learning environment. Subscribe to Think Inclusive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app and join the conversation. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of Allah be God. with you. Allahu Akbar. Our Father, who art in heaven. In you, O Lord, I trust. May I never Shema be Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Walk cheerfully over the earth answering that of God in everyone. You're listening to Kindred Spirits. Hello, I'm David Freudberg. Today on Kindred Spirits, we delve into American history to learn something of the role of women in the spiritual life of the United States. Many women have, of course, served an important function in their own families, in taking care to teach children about God and bring the qualities of love and patience into daily life. Today we'll hear about women who've taken a more public posture, in some cases heroically. When European settlers first came to this land, ostensibly to escape religious persecution, they proceeded to set up still another official code of worship. Several women who dared to differ philosophically, including Anne Hutchinson and Mary Dyer, were central actors in a drama that finally led to the establishment of religious liberty in America. We'll also learn about Mary Baker Eddy, the 19th century lady whose charisma and personal faith were responsible for founding a new religion, Christian Science. To help us travel back into time, we've enlisted the help of Joanne Hamlin, a New York-based writer and actress who's been performing in theater, radio, and television for 35 years. She's developed the popular Choices program for both stage and public radio. It's a kaleidoscope of American women in all walks of life through three centuries. Let's start with Anne Hutchinson, who lived in Puritan times. Anne Hutchinson was one of many English Puritans who came to the United States looking for freedom of religion. The Puritans, of course, had attempted what they said was to purify the Church of England, Um, And when they were not welcomed, they migrated to the United States. Uh, 
she came in 1634 with her husband, who very willingly gave up a very profitable and prosperous business to go with her. Uh, she mainly came because her own particular minister, whose name was John Cotton, had already gone to America, and she wanted to follow his teachings. So she came in that uh, year uh, to a rather forbidding uh, country in those days. It was rather rough and uh, harsh existence. She was known even um, before she arrived as a woman who had rather unorthodox views and would find that though uh, Puritans had come to America for freedom of religion, it was for the Orthodox Puritan religion and other points of view were not really welcome. So it was falling back into the same old trap. Yes, it, it's ironic, but in a way it ended up that way. Roger Williams, who had had some original ideas, uh, had already been forced to leave the Massachusetts colony and was beginning to found Rhode Island, where religious tolerance was indeed a fact of life. But Governor John Winthrop, who was a governor a good part of the time, uh, Mary's time in uh, Boston, um, wrote in his diary uh, not long after she arrived that she was a woman who held dangerous errors of belief, but admitted that she was a woman of ready wit, a voluble tongue, and more bold than a man, which didn't exactly endear her to Mr. Winthrop. But uh, she didn't cause trouble immediately when she got here. She started as a nurse, and a midwife particularly, and uh, she had plenty of experience for that, as she was the mother of 15 children herself. <laughs> but she gradually began to impress the other women in the community with her very tolerant and compassionate religious views and a sense of God as a God of love. She asserted that it was possible <clears throat> for an individual to commune directly with God. Right. Why was that deemed such a threat? It's curious why, but the, it primarily, I think, had to do with the, the structure and hierarchy of the church. To the Puritan thought, the revelation of the Bible, uh, personal revelation had ceased with the Bible. And it was then up to the um, ministers to interpret that to the people so that there was not room for individual uh, revelation or even in our sense of inspiration. Um, so that someone claiming to do that was a great uh, threat to them and was very upsetting to the, the basic structure of the church. And, uh, you know, from their point of view, you can perhaps be sympathetic. You can't have everybody coming up with a different version of how an established church is supposed to uh, believe, uh, but Anne really had this deep feeling that the individual could experience this sense of God's nearness without anybody helping them to it, and um, a sense of God's grace was what she most importantly saw, the sense of God's love and tenderness. And she brought those qualities into her own life in the great compassion she showed to the people that she helped as a nurse and the women who came to her. Now, the sermon on Sunday was the main event of the week, but there were midweek discussion groups 
but women were not allowed to attend these. Well, when she started holding meetings for the women, uh, as opposed to the meetings which were held for the men, this began the difficulty. Um, because she held these meetings in which she would repeat a sermon that had been given on Sunday, and she evidently had a prodigious memory. And if any woman had had to miss it, um, she would repeat the sermon. But gradually she began to interpret the sermons and criticize most of the ministers, except for the minister that she particularly loved, John Cotton. This was what caused tremendous um, furor, and also the fact that men began attending her these meetings. They were very lively, interesting meetings, apparently, and men were drawn to them, too. And the other thing that's very important to remember is that during this time, the church and state were one, so that any rebellion against the church was not just a heresy in the usual sense, it was indeed treason. So that, obviously, Anne couldn't be allowed to continue. Now, I'm condensing a very complicated and rather long story that went on over a period of some years. Yes. But this was the crooks of it. And um, she was eventually arrested for those dangerous errors of belief after much questioning by the ministers and so forth. But also, and in the indictment, it said, for holding meetings, a thing not tolerable in the sight of God nor fitting for her sex. And this is a real red flag in this whole story because it was the fact that she was a woman had a lot to do with the resentment. And the fact that she was drawing some of their prominent members away from the main ministers of the church to come and to hear her. Yes. What was her fate after the arrest? Well, she was brought to trial in 1637 in Cambridge, which is just across the Charles River from Boston. But in those days, it was far enough away to ensure that not too many of her followers were going to be able to be there. And here, and this is rather shattering picture to conjure up. It was in a cold, unheated little courthouse. And here she faced 40 inquisitors who were her accusers, her judge, her jury. All male. All male. She was given no one to defend her. She was forced to stand for hours on end. She was badgered, insulted, tricked into giving testimony against herself. I mean, even by 17th century standards, it was really a shocking abridgment of justice. But she, and she was in middle age by then, she was 45 in frail health. She had borne 15 children, weathered the rigors of New England winters. Uh, but she stood up to it remarkably well, you know, answering scriptural quote with scriptural quote to uphold her position. And fortunately, the whole transcript of her trial has been preserved, so it makes very interesting reading. Uh, she might have gotten off quite lightly through the help of her own minister, John Cotton, but toward the end of the second day of what must have really been a terrible ordeal, um, she burst out with an explanation of why she had come to America that was really her undoing. Because in that, she told of her religious conflicts and doubts uh, while she'd been in England, and um, how when her minister, John Cotton, had left, there had been no one that she dared hear because she disagreed with the teachings. 
And then she said, it was revealed to me that I should go thither also, and that there I would find much persecution. But the Lord God bade me not to fear. And then she turned to these 40 ministers and she said, oh, you have power over my body. But the Lord Jesus has power over my body and soul, and he will protect me. Well, one of the ministers interrupted out of what I can only imagine was a rather stunned silence and said, how do you know it was God that did reveal this to you and not Satan? And she said, by the voice of his spirit to my soul. Well, that really did it. I mean, here was a woman daring to say that God could speak directly to her. And that certainly threatened the, the uh, ultimate authority of the church over one's right, soul. Right, right. So she, wasn't, uh, she was uh, sentenced to banishment, but because it was November and very cruel time of year, she was graciously allowed to remain in the home of her worst enemy under house arrest until spring. And through the exhortations of her own minister and other ministers, she was, and separated from her family, incidentally, which was very important deprivation, she um, did recant. But when she was brought back to trial the next spring, really like Joan of Arc, she renounced her recantation and reaffirmed her beliefs. So she was excommunicated and sentenced to banishment. We're talking with Joanne Hamlin. She's an actress, a writer. She wrote and developed the popular Choices performance, a kaleidoscope of American women. And today on Kindred Spirits, we're focusing on women in American history who've made an important spiritual contribution. Let us uh, turn our uh, historical clock uh, a few more notches, uh, bring us up to the uh, 19th century, where Mary Baker Eddy uh, had obviously a very profound influence on uh, the American religious landscape. She founded the tradition of Christian science, and it's fair to say, Joanne, that uh, you have been a lifelong member of the Christian Science Church. Where did Mrs. Eddy derive her inspiration from? Well, a lot of it, of course, had to do not only with her own personal uh, experience, but the period of life itself. One of the great facts of the 19th century was the westward expansion. And our country was pushing its frontiers westward, and new ideas were flooding into the country uh, with the immigration from Europe, many religious groups were in the country living together. Uh, new ideas were popping up all over the place. There was a very open, fermenting uh, feel to the 19th century as opposed to the rather rigid thinking of the 17th century. So there was much more going on in the intellectual and uh, philosophical thinking of the time in the period in which um, Mary Baker, uh, as a young girl, was growing up in Bow, New Hampshire, another New England lady. But she was being raised in the very uh, strict Calvinism of her father. She referred to it later as the relentless theology of her father's uh, religion. And at the same time, being very much influenced by her mother, who was a woman of great love and, and compassion, and a woman who 
uh, believed deeply in prayer and in the power of God in her life. And Mary, as a child, had a very, it seemed, extraordinary religious and spiritual sense for such a young child and, and things which not many small children might be worrying or thinking about today were things which she was concerned about, which um, had a great bearing on her later life. For instance, there were some um, teachings of her father's church which she found very hard to accept, such as the total depravity of man and eternal damnation. And she asked her mother once when she was just 12 years old whether her mother really believed in eternal punishment. And her mother said, well, Mary, I guess I do. And little 12-year-old Mary said, well, then God's not as good as my mother, and he'll find me a hard case. <laughs> and she was really already at that age questioning and uh, really torn between the concept of a strict and punishing God and a sense of God as love, which is what Anne Hutchinson and Mary Dyer had both been reaching toward, a real need to find the motherhood of God as well as the fatherhood of God. And this became, through Mrs. Eddy's uh, human experience, a, a very important quest. She had physical illness through much of her life. Did that enable her to look at the, the major questions? Oh, I think so. I think the fact that she did seem to suffer a great deal from ill health as a, ch a child and as a woman, apparently from a kind of dyspepsia and a, a weakness of her spine, and uh, really in great agony much of the time. Um, and yet at the same time, she was a very lively witty. Everyone who described her as a young woman spoke of her beauty and her wit and liveliness. So she had a great love of life and zest for life that kept getting knocked down by the fact she was ill a lot of the time. So it wasn't surprising that she was constantly searching for uh, cures, and there was much thought of many kinds of cures uh, in the air in New England and in the Western uh, world at that time. Uh, homeopathy was uh, very popular, water cures. There were what were called magnetic healers, uh, mind cure. All of these were new techniques, some of which were pure quackery, others were being practiced by serious and, and uh, well-meaning people. Mrs. Eddy, then Mary Baker, um, tried many of these. She was married as a young woman to a very a handsome and charming young man named George Glover who took her to the South. It was the first time she'd really been away from home. And she went off with great hopes and expectations. But he died within the first year of their marriage um, through, from typhoid. Here she was left a young widow in a foreign part of the country, pregnant with her uh, child. And it was quite an agonizing journey for her both mentally and physically to get back to New Hampshire. And she had to come back and live with her family. Again, we see that though there had been much progress in many ways in the United States, women had not made all that much headway. And a woman uh, who was left a young widow without means of support because her husband's uh, money had evaporated in some 
uh, projects that did not work out. She had to go home and live with her family, and this was not easy at best. Uh, because of her ill health, when her baby was born, he turned out to be a very obstreperous child. It was very hard for Mary to take care of him herself. Then her mother died, which was a terrible blow. Her most beloved brother died. She seemed to be losing everything that meant the most to her. And then her father remarried, and she was no longer really welcome in his home. So here she was with this child she really was not physically able to care for and um, not really wanted in her father's home. And she lived with her sister. She went from pillar to post visiting people. And eventually, to make a very long story shorter, her child was given into the care of foster parents. And Mary later remarried a man, Dr. Patterson, a dentist, and hoped then that she would have a home for her child. But Dr. Patterson did not want the boy. And eventually he was taken by his foster parents to the West, and Mary lost track of him for many, many years. So it seemed as though every human thing she put any faith or trust in seemed to be failing her. And she was a great affection for her second husband, and he was a, a, a kind and well-meaning man, but they were really mismatched, and eventually the marriage ended after 20 years <laughs> in divorce. But it was during those years where she was facing many personal challenges in her relationship with her husband um, and ill health, in which she was trying various methods of healing. Uh, she was particularly drawn to uh, one healer who was uh, considered a magnetic healer, which healed through, really through suggestion and also through manipulation, a physical manipulation of dipping his hands in water and manipulating the head and then suggesting thoughts of health and so forth uh, to Mary. And she would gain relief and uh, was very devoted uh, to this man. But gradually, she would turn back after every new trial to God. This was the core of her life, and the Bible was her constant companion. And she began to perceive that illness was mental and that the cure for it was not physical, was not in drugs. Um, in homeopathy, as you may know, it is attenuating a drug, so it is practically disappears. The practice uh, today has become placebos, um, and even of giving someone a sugar pill, and it would cure them because of their faith in the drug. And so Mary realized that it was not in the drug that the cure was coming, but in the mental concept of it. And this was the line that she eventually began to pursue more and more. And then there was one, what seemed was going to be a fatal um, accident in her life, which really precipitated her into what she was searching for. And that was? She slipped on the ice um, once. This was uh, many, many years later, um, in the uh, eight, 1866. And was carried back to where she was staying at the time. 
uh, unconscious. A doctor was called, and they felt there were many internal injuries, and they didn't really expect her to survive the night. Uh, she did, and the next day she asked for her Bible, and she turned sort of at random and read one of the healings of Jesus. And then a great flooding of, of light came to her thought of the realization that healing was from God and that this was where healing was, that Jesus healed through the power of God and that was how she could heal because she had had examples in her life of healing through prayer before this. And she was healed, completely healed. And when the doctor came back the following day, he couldn't believe it. You know, people had been, you know, coming to say goodbye to her and so forth, and here she was up and about and healed. But she wasn't willing to accept just the physical healing. She wanted to find out why she was healed. And she spent many, many years in that discovery. And that's why she speaks of the discovery of Christian science, because she felt she was discovering spiritual laws that were already there, uh, the laws that Jesus had used. Discovery as opposed to invention. Exactly. And that it, this was what she worked to do, and then to put it into a system of teaching and healing that anyone could use because she had found when she depended on a person for healing, if some that person left the scene or she was not able to be in touch with him, then her support was gone. And she wanted those who came to her for healing not to come to her personally, but to come for what she could teach them of the truth. And this was what she spent the rest of her life doing. Aside from physical healings, which she experienced, did she find that through God's power uh, it was possible to experience healings with regard to emotional oh. problems oh, and personal yes. sadnesses? And, oh, but also the healing of, of sin in its broadest sense. Uh, um, to her, uh, sin was not moral, just moral wrongdoing, but it was anything that tried to separate man from God. And so, just as Jesus had healed sin and sickness in the same way, um, she felt that sin and sickness should be healed through the same power, the same spiritual laws. So that through uh, Christian science, people have been healed of of, of drug addiction, of alcoholism, of, of moral problems, as well as physical healings. And that it was the, the demonstration, the term which she used, of expressing God in one's daily life in all of one's activities that was really living uh, one's religion. The idea of God's healing power how, in the Christian science viewpoint, does one bring that to one's life? In a way, it's tied in with this sense of discovery, of really 
learning to see what man already is, which from the Christian science point of view is the image and likeness of God, perfect and pure and whole. And to see and recognize what already is. In other words, not trying to change sick matter into well matter, but to see one's true selfhood and that inevitably results in the physical um, bettering of one's human condition. The true self being the potential self? Uh, yes, uh, the, the true uh, spiritual concept of man. Mrs. Eddy writes in her textbook, Science and Health, a definition of man, which she says, man, and this is the true real man, is not made up of brain, blood, bones, and other material elements. He is spiritual and perfect. The compound idea of God expressing all right ideas. Now this is a very profoundly spiritual concept of man. But as we glimpse this, we then are able to express it in our human experience. We've been listening to Joanne Hamlin, whose historical perspective on American women in all walks of life is performed on stage in her popular Choices program, a kaleidoscope of American women. For Kindred Spirits, I'm David Freudberg. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.